Alright, welcome back everybody. Um, today we're going to be, uh, I, I actually, I, I talked to the pastors and uh, we're, for the next week, we're, uh, for this week, we were intended to talk about really how we got our New Testament. Um, and in thinking about preparing for uh, this time, it became too much, too much to fit into uh, one week. And so we're going to split this uh, equip class over the next two weeks. So uh, we'll cut it off right around uh, uh, around the 300s today, and then we'll, we'll pick up later on with issues of translation, uh, some more issues of textual criticism, and how we got our uh, New Testament that you hold in your hand today. So let me, uh, let me get started by praying and uh, ask God to bless our time. God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, your, uh, your writers, the book of Hebrews... Uh, says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, we believe your word is powerful and authoritative and true. And so, Lord, we want to learn about that, not in a way that, that allows us to pick it apart or to sit in judgment of it or to critique it, but to understand it better uh, so that we know how to interpret it, how to rightly divide the word of truth as, as, uh, as Paul commanded Timothy. And, uh, and so, Lord, I pray that you would instruct us in this time and enlighten us uh, and encourage us. Encourage us to love you more and encourage us to love the, your church more. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off with a question that I'll pose to you guys. And this is more than a rhetorical question. I'd like to hear your thoughts. And this question, are the very words of the Bible that you hold in your hand, are they uh, inspired and inerrant, the very words, or just the ideas behind the words? And why? What do you think? Is it the very words? Or is it just the ideas behind those words? Anyone willing to venture a guess? We just talked about heresy last week, and you may be, may be, may be guilty of it this week. Yes, do you have it? I was going to say the very words. Okay. Okay, sure, sure. Yep. Okay, for the most part, okay? I think so, yeah. Okay, okay. Any other thoughts? Yes?
Right, right. So issues of translation pose a little bit of a challenge for this idea of, of every word uh, because sometimes you have to substitute words or entire phrases or ways to communicate things to be able to translate something from, say, Greek into another language, a non-European language uh, that maybe doesn't follow Indo-European or, or, uh, uh, or Germanic uh, ways of, of, of thought. Um, and take an example on top of that. You, you, you mentioned like a way versus the way. Well, in Greek, there is no indefinite article. There is no a to say like a way. So it, you actually even be, wouldn't even be able to say it in Greek like if you wanted to, if you wanted to communicate that thought, right? So being able to translate uh, between languages really has us, we have to think about this issue of what, what actually is inspired, what actually is uh, uh, necessary for us to consider, again, I, I specified, I was, I, was, I was particular about this Bible that I hold in my hands. Is this very Bible that I hold in my hands, the very words of this Bible, inspired and inerrant, or the ideas behind those words? We'll revisit that. We'll come back to that. Uh, and we'll actually revisit it next week as well. But we'll come back to that at the end of this lesson. Let's ask some questions. So, when was the New Testament written? All right, so it's written between 45 and 95 A.D. Uh, and uh, it, that depends on, so uh, by me saying that, I already out myself as a conservative, a more conservative New Testament scholar, uh, because if you ask more progressive uh, liberal New Testament scholars, say folks who are in the religious studies department at the University of Oklahoma, uh, they will post a far later date for most of those books. I mean, they probably place several Pauline epistles within the 45, 50, 60 range before he dies in the Neronian persecution. And yet other books, they post far later, maybe 2 Timothy in, uh, in, the, in the middle of the 100s. Uh, and, uh, or no, 2 Peter, sorry. 2 Peter in the middle of the 100s and 2 Timothy in the early 100s. Uh, other books uh, way past 100, that kind of thing. Depends on, but how do we as Bible-believing, uh, committed Christians, uh, how do we date the New Testament? How do, we, how do we think about when things were written? Well, we do that two ways, through internal evidence. For example, uh, what do the contents, when, when I say internal evidence of the New Testament, I mean, what do the contents of the New Testament tell us about when it written? What kind of clues do we get? We could ask all kinds of questions. Let me give you a few. So, for example, in some of the uh, New Testament books, we can, we can try to date them by whether or not they refer to certain events in the book of Acts. So, for example, there is this uh, event in Acts chapter 15. Uh, assuming Acts is, is, is tracking along with historic events in a, in a relatively accurate way, there's this event in Acts chapter 15 where uh, the apostles get together with Paul and Barnabas. This is like Peter and James and, and, the, and the towering apostles. Uh, and they discuss with Paul and Barnabas, what are we going to do about Gentile believers? What are we going to have them do? And there's this council in Jerusalem. And so they decide we are not going to have them uh, be Jews. They don't have to be circumcised. We're just going to uh, have them abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, mainly because of the context and surrounding uh, uh, people. But we're basically just going to tell them to affirm the gospel, and that's it. We're not going to put a bunch of extra stuff on them. Well, that really helps us kind of date and navigate, okay, what's going on in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul actually confronts Peter uh, for being a hypocrite, for acting uh, one way with Jews and another way with Gentiles, right? Like it, 
it forces us to think, okay, when is that happening? Does this give us a clue on what, what went down first? And we actually believe that uh, Galatians uh, went down. It was one of the earliest epistles because it, we don't get that evidence that they've already had this kind of conversation. Uh, let me give you another one. This is, what kind of controversies or heresies do they, they address? Early on, we don't understand Gnosticism as something that was on the scene first off, right? First off the bat, when the apostles were per- first preaching the gospel, Gnosticism is something that develops at the latter half of the first century. And so we start to see uh, epistle writers, First John, uh, for example, addressing this issue of Gnosticism, Gnostic beliefs about Jesus, about his divinity, about his humanity that we talked about last week. And so that helps us date the epistles of John at a little bit of a later date. Another example, progression of church organization. So this is kind of interesting to think about, but the church didn't start off with bishops and elders and deacons as something that was an official role. What we see in Paul's first epistles, so for example, in 1 Corinthians, in Romans, what were, what were his earlier epistles, we see what is a church that, is, that seems to be more led by gifts of the Spirit. Paul isn't designating, you're going to be a bishop, and this is what it means to be a bishop, this is what it means to be a deacon or an elder. He's talking about how we're serving the church by the various gifts that God has apportioned to us, to be prophets, apostles, uh, people who are hospitable, and that kind of thing. But we see in his later books, uh, references in 2 Timothy, for example, we see references to what we call the pastoral epistles, references to a, a more developed form of church organization. He's actually talking about, okay, it seems that people are developing formal roles. And so what we take that to, to, to be is that uh, as the church is growing, as the church is developing in the 30 years between those times or the 20 years between the times that Paul is writing, that it seems to be that uh, there is a, a development of roles such that we can date certain epistles later than the others. References to the destruction of Jerusalem. So uh, 70 AD is this watershed moment in, in the history of Judaism because the Jews rebel against Rome and Rome crushes them. Uh, and, and doesn't necessarily wipe them out, but crushes them severely and destroys all of Jerusalem. And this is a huge event because this actually marks uh, the uh, divide between Christians and Jews after that. Christianity is no longer this uh, Jewish sect uh, that people kind of think of as Jewish, but it becomes a almost completely Gentile thing after that. Uh, but also what happens is you, you kind of get hints and references in some of the uh, New Testament books to what might be, might be a, a side reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. For example, in Matthew chapters 22 and 24, there seems to be a reference to uh, God punishing uh, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Jews, by burning down their village or burning down the temple or destroying the temple. And so some scholars take that to be a reference to something that's already happened, that is the destruction of Jerusalem. And so they date Matthew a little bit later, after 70. Whereas other uh, Gospels don't refer to that. It's almost like they just never heard of it. Or Hebrews, for example, what I have up here. The author of Hebrews seems to be talking about uh, Jewish uh, rites and rituals. The sacrificial system is something that's still going on, that Jews would recognize and something that's still happening because he's using it to compare to Christianity and how Jesus is the, the perfect high priest and offers the sacrifice. Well, after AD 70 and the temple is destroyed, the Jewish sacrificial system is destroyed in that way as they knew it. And so that allows us to place Hebrews at an earlier date, sometime before 70. So you see what I'm talking about. There's uh, internal evidence that would help us date the New Testament epistles and gospels uh, earlier or later, depending on events. Uh, lastly, references to Roman persecution. I talked about this in the sermon a couple of weeks ago, 
But in 1 Peter, he describes a kind of persecution under Rome that is more slander, gossip, uh, some of it malicious, some of it based on ignorance. That doesn't sound like the kind of persecution that John describes in Revelation, where he talks about the whore of Babylon that's slaying the martyrs and that kind of thing. And so there seems to be in Peter a different idea of Roman persecution that comes earlier before it starts to get heated, before it gets worse. And that describes persecution that could have been under uh, Nero, but more likely under Domitian, and that is in the late first century, around the 90s. And so that allows us to place it then as well. So we have internal evidence that allows us to date some of these books. We also have external evidence that allows us to date them. External evidence, for example, would be what are people outside the church saying about the Gospels? Do we see them being quoted? And we actually do. All the New Testament writings, every one of them, we see attested, quoted, alluded to, referenced in the Apostolic Fathers. Remember the, the first equip class I showed you a, a uh, a, a two-volume set of the Apostolic Fathers. These are writings that came from the early uh, second century. So we're talking about 100 to 150. And all of those, throughout, throughout all of those writings, we see references to the New Testament books we uh, see as authority, we recognize as authoritative. And so that allows us to at least date those books to before those times, right? Like obviously the Apostolic Fathers knew of those books, they were authoritative and they were quoting them. So that's how we have a, a little bit of an idea of how we can date these things. So let me give you a, a rundown of, of how we might see this dating work. Um, right around AD 30, we see the death and resurrection of Jesus, and after that, people start writing. The earliest uh, epistles we see are, are Galatians and James, uh, and that is both combination of internal evidence uh, and uh, uh, tradition, church tradition. First and second Thessalonians we also date rather early. These, these are Paul's earliest epistles. Mark, we have as the first gospel. That is, that is understood by most New Testament scholars as the very first. Now, that wasn't how it was understood historically. Historically, Matthew, the book of Matthew, was thought to be the first gospel. Uh, and so it was placed first in your New Testament. If you open up your New Testament, Matthew comes first. Because historically, traditionally, Matthew was thought to be first. First, we no longer think that. Most New Testament scholars think Mark came first. For reasons we can talk about, if you'd like. And we've got Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now... Uh, uh, say in the first half of the 50s, you've got prison epistles over here, 1 Peter, Philemon. Then you've got a Neronian persecution. So that's where we're more likely to see 2 Peter uh, and uh, 2 Timothy before they die. These apostles die. Peter and Paul die in, the, in the, the late 60s. Then afterwards, we see the Domitian persecution. We've got Gospel of John, Epistles of John, and Revelation. Now, I, I can't give you the exact dates, and nobody knows the exact dates. I'm giving you a, a, basically a summary of what most conservative New Testament scholars and writers would suggest when these things are being written. Um, and if, when we have questions afterwards, we can talk about that a little bit more. But here's a question. When did Christians begin to recognize the New Testament writings as the Word of God? They already knew the Old Testament was God's word. That was something that they, they whenever, whenever you see the word graphe or scriptures uh, in the New Testament, most often that is referring to the Old Testament. But when did, the, new, when did the, the, the early church start to recognize, say, the writings of Paul or the writings of Peter or the Gospels as scripture, as God's word, as authoritative in the same way that Deuteronomy is authoritative or the Psalms? Are authoritative in God's word. Well, we actually see evidence of that in the scripture itself. Let me give you some examples. So Paul, uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, one of his first books, so again, we're, we're talking about maybe the 50s, uh, uh, so very early on in church history, 
He, he writes to uh, the Thessalonians, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't suggest, it doesn't indicate that he, uh, he's talking about the gospel, because Paul is perfectly fine saying the gospel, right? Like the, the, the gospel about Jesus Christ. Uh, about his, his death and resurrection. No, it seems like he's talking about the word of God. The teaching that you received, he says, is not from, even though it is from us, it's not from men, it's from God. So Paul seems to think his, his own writings, he seems to recognize an inspiration uh, in his own writings. That the, I mean, it might seem like an arrogant thing unless uh, God, in fact, is the one uh, telling him, these are uh, my words, I, my teaching, I want to uh, give to the church. And so Paul seems to recognize his own words as authoritative. But other New Testament writers also do the same. So, for example, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter says, and this is toward the end of the epistle, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, he's referencing Paul the Apostle, uh, also wrote to you in his, uh, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. I, I underline that. So there seems to be, Peter is aware of, as he's writing, a collection of Paul's letters. Right, like Paul's letters are apparently circulating. People know about it. Like he's writing to this group who apparently know about Paul's letters, have heard about them, and maybe are aware even. Maybe even they have some of Paul's letters. But he says, as he writes in all his letters, when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. True, right? You probably thought the same thing as you've read Paul's letters. Some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Right? So he refers to Paul's letters and saying there's difficult things to understand and people twist them as they do the other scriptures. So it seems to suggest that Peter here is referencing Paul's letters as other scriptures, right? Like as in talking about like with the Old Testament, he's putting it on par. He's saying that people twist both of those things and calling them under the umbrella of scriptures together. Let me use another example from the Apostle Paul. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17, and 18, a little bit later in Paul's ministry. He says, Let the elders who rule uh, well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture, I underline that, for the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. So he gives you two quotes, and he calls them both Scripture. Now the first one, uh, is from the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. But the second one occurs nowhere in the Old Testament. It only occurs in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So what has Paul done? Well, he's basically said, uh, he's quoted Scripture and, and said that Luke, the Gospel, is on par with Deuteronomy, right? Like, and, and calls them on the umbrella term scriptures. And so we see already uh, Paul and Peter in the epistles, Paul referring to his own writings as the word of God, Peter referring to Paul's writings as the word of God, and Paul referring, referring to Luke as the scriptures. Uh, and so very early on, we already see recognition that God is doing something in the writings of the apostles. Uh, he is teaching us in a way that is not just good advice. It's not just, uh, hey, this is... Uh, you know, effective preaching, but these are God's very words to us. Now, why wasn't there a New Testament, though? We've got to think about this question. Why wasn't there a New Testament established immediately? 
Like, why, why did this take time to develop? Because it did take time to develop. For us to develop a canon, a list of scriptures that the church universally recognized as inspired by God and authoritative. Why don't we have that immediately? Well, there's, there's two practical considerations here. The first, uh, this is a map of, of uh, where the apostles are, the regions where the apostles were uh, and where a lot of these churches, where they're writing from or to. And so we've got to think about the geographic distribution of where a lot of this is going on. And not every uh, church, not every region of churches had the same epistles or had access to the same gospels. And so uh, you've got over here in Rome, obviously the letter to the Romans may have been circulating around. You've got the Gospel of Mark, which was likely written to Romans, and First and Second Peter also written to uh, churches uh, under Roman rule. They might have been over here, might have had a Gospel, or First uh, and Second Peter as well. Then you've got Luke written to Greeks, uh, and First and Second Thess. Uh, you've got epistles to Corinthians over here. You've got the Book of Revelation addressed to all of these churches in Thyatira and Laodicea and all of these places. And then you've got the Gospel of Matthew, maybe in Antioch, in the Church of Antioch over here in James and Hebrews in Jerusalem. And so it took a while for these uh, letters. I mean, they don't have email. They don't have mass media communication. Uh, these things had to be uh, dispersed, right? Like they had to be copied. Uh, they had to be shared around. And that's actually a lot more difficult than it would seem uh, because copying uh, took a very, very long time. Uh, back then, you had to, I mean, not everybody was literate. Matter of fact, uh, 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 a, not a majority of the population was literate. It took a special class of individuals we call scribes or amanuenses to, uh, to write those kinds of things down. But you also had to have access to writing materials. Uh, at this time, when the New Testament is being written, you had mostly what's called papyrus. Papyrus is uh, sheets of paper made from uh, basically bamboo shoots that have been bored out and pressed together. Uh, you had other kinds of materials called vellum, made from calf skin and parchment made from cow skin. But those things were very expensive and, and it was difficult to reproduce all of these things. Uh, and so uh, the distribution of all of these books, the Gospels, the Epistles, took time uh, for them to be collected, recognized by churches, and they were uh, popping up in different regions and so, obviously, early on, it would be more difficult to have an established canon or list that everybody recognizes authoritative. Now, when do we start seeing a canon emerge? Now, the, the word canon, uh, it basically just means like a measuring stick, right? Like a, a yard. It literally refers to like a, a reed that would be used uh, to measure the depth of something, right? So you've got a canon. What we mean is by that is standard, a standard collection of, of books in the New Testament that we would uh, identify and use as authoritative. When do we see one start to emerge? Well, obviously, we see references to the New Testament books in the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. So already in about 100 to 150 AD, we already see kind of a standard, not a list, not like a compiled list, but we see a standard in terms of these Apostolic Fathers quoting, citing, depending on, using the words and teaching from the epistles and the gospels as we understand them. So there does seem to be some kind of a, a standard or uh, canon that is informal and popping around that people recognize as authoritative. When do we start see, to see lists emerge, though? So we start seeing lists emerge when we start seeing really gross heresies emerge. Uh, and, uh, and so this is one of the first offenders. This is a guy named Marcion. Now, Marcion uh, was a you could call it Martian. Martian is, is fine as well, but Marcion 
uh, is a, a writer and evangelist. And so uh, if Marcion was here today, he would, he would say that he had the best of intentions, uh, that he really was trying to win people to the gospel. Uh, and yet as he read the Old Testament, he found the God of the Old Testament offensive. Uh, he looked at the New Testament, he looked at the New Testament writings that he saw from the Apostle Paul describing this God of grace, this Jesus who uh, died for people, loved the world, uh, and he saw the God of the Old Testament and he said, these are, not the two, these are not the same people. These are not the same gods, right? The God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment uh, and wrath uh, and barbarity, and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and uh, uh, something that I can accept. And so what he did... Uh, was he basically, one, he, he, he rejected all writings that he believed were too Jewish, too Old Testament, uh, too uh, either appealing to Jews or relied on indication like quotes from the Old Testament or used from, from the, the God of the Old Testament because he felt like that was corrupt. It was, it, was, it was integrating or conflating two gods that really didn't have any business being together, the God of grace and the God of the Old Testament. And so uh, he got rid of all of those books uh, that, that, that didn't, uh, that didn't highlight the Jesus uh, and the God of the New Testament that he, that he felt. Um, and he also modified Gospels. So uh, he thought the Gospel of Luke was the best because it was the most Greek. It was the most up-to-date, the most refined. Uh, and he modified it. He didn't actually uh, give people the whole, uh, the, he cut out little parts of it, that kind of thing. And we have no uh, indication that he, he knew of Acts. And so he has this canon that we date from around 145, this list that he wrote out. Uh, it includes a modified Luke, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans. Now, you can automatically like, guess uh, uh, any, any epistle of Paul's that busts on like Jewish legalistic uh, kind of teachings would, would totally be in Marcion's canon, but he has also 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And he excludes everything else, everything that's too Jewish. Now, uh, again, uh, Marcion was an evangelist, and he would say that he had the best of intentions. He was really trying to recognize uh, who, uh, who Jesus was and who God was as revealed in Christ uh, versus who this God of the Old Testament was that he found offensive. Now, uh, other apostolic fathers, other early writers, uh, of course, called him on this and said, you can't have a discontinuity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament because Jesus refers to the God of the Old Testament as his father. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's depending on it. Paul is depending on the Old Testament saying this, this is the revelation. The gospel is a continuation and a fulfillment of everything that was happening in the Old Testament. So you, you can't just get rid of all those things. And so uh, he comes up with his own canon. He's, he's arguing against Marcion. Uh, he actually has a book called Against Heresies, and he, he confronts Gnosticism. He confronts all the things that we talked about in the previous weeks, but he also confronts uh, Marcion. And so uh, Irenaeus' canon, dating from around 180, we have all of the current books that are in our New Testament, except for Philemon, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Hebrews. Um, it also includes uh, a book that... It is included in the Apostolic Fathers, again, that, that multi-volume set that I showed you guys a couple of weeks ago, called The Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, we obviously don't recognize that now as authoritative, but he thought it was edifying for the church uh, and important and, 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 and useful. And so he included that in his canon, but he doesn't include all of those. Now, it could be that Irenaeus wasn't aware of the other epistles. I get we're talking about 180. Maybe the distribution wasn't around by then. Uh, and yet... Uh, it could also be that Irenaeus in particular didn't find those books authoritative. It, he himself is not 
uh, an apostle. He's not authoritative like that. He's really just kind of indicating to us what people were recognizing at the time. We have another standard that emerged around 170 AD called the Muratorian Canon. Uh, that doesn't refer to the guy's name. It's just, uh, it's just where they found it. So there's, uh, there is a papyrus, a, 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 a piece of paper that we found uh, in the late 17 or the mid 1700s. Uh, and, and it's basically crude Latin. That is, a, it is obviously a translation of Greek at the time, but it contains a list of authoritative New Testament books and that dates from around 170 AD. We date it there because it refers to current events at the time and refers to a guy named Pope Pius or Bishop Pius who was around at 170. And so uh, we date it from around then. It contains all of our current uh, books of our New Testament except for First and Second Peter and James. So again, we're kind of honing in on the books that the, the early church identifies as authoritative. And apparently this one lacked First and Second Peter and James. Uh, also it included two books. One called The Apocalypse of Peter, which it kind of uh, indicates is like, this is a maybe. It includes in the list is like a maybe, maybe this is authoritative. I don't know. And then something called The Wisdom of Solomon. Origen. Origen is an early apologist and theologian. Uh, one of our, one of our, our first uh, philosopher Christians, uh, and really one of the first uh, Christians who were able to take the gospel and try to communicate it to a Greek world in a way that they would understand it, that they would find compelling. We wouldn't agree with a lot of the things that he taught today, and yet uh, he, was going, he was getting after it. He was trying to, he was trying to share uh, the gospel with the intelligentsia of his day. Uh, he also developed a, uh, 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 a canon, and that is our first indication, our first record, origin in about 250. That's our first record of, of somebody writing down and listing all 27 of the, of the New Testament books that we have today that we recognize as authoritative. And lastly, okay, so when was the canon finalized? It happens in the late 300s, uh, and that happens, uh, we, we see the, the written, this, this what's called a festal letter. Uh, these bishops in Alexandria wrote letters every Easter, and so in the 39th festal letter of, of Athanasius. Athanasius, you may recall, uh, was the guy who uh, fought against Arius, Arianism, uh, this idea that Jesus wasn't really, uh, uh, wasn't really God, but he, uh, well, he was God, but he was like uh, God-ish, God-light. Uh, he wasn't God in the same way that the Father was. Athanasius warred against that doctrine, defeated it, uh, and later in this uh, letter identifies, again, all 27 books of our New Testament. This canon was later ratified in the late 300s at several uh, at several councils, all right? So uh, that's a quick rundown. Now, how did we recognize uh, which books, what is the process that we were going through to recognize which books were authoritative? Now, I've, I have underlined recognize there because I want to clarify when I'm talking about uh, where the New Testament canon came from, the early church is not, we don't want to think of them as judging which books belong and which ones don't, suppressing some books uh, and elevating others. Uh, because I, I think that is actually a hallmark of, of modern, like what we say is liberal New Testament scholarship of, of portraying the early church as really this like power play of groups in power trying to say, we like these books and we don't like these. We're going to burn these and suppress these and we're going to say that these are the ones that are authoritative, right? Like we don't want to think about it that way because that is, I, I don't think that's necessarily true and I also uh, don't think that's very helpful for understanding uh, uh, how God has revealed Scripture to us as we have it today. And so 
uh, I think it's better and more fruitful to say that the early church used criteria to recognize that God had given these uh, writings, these books, these gospels, these epistles, authority, that he hadn't given other books. So we recognize that. We don't judge it, conclude it, decide it. Uh, it is revealed to us, and we recognize that kind of thing. So what were the criteria? Well, there were three primary criteria uh, for recognition. The first was apolicity, all right? So it had to have apostolic origin, or at least it had to be connected to an apostle. So uh, obviously the epistles have apostolic origin, but can you think of the, what are the writings in the, the New Testament that don't, well, most of the epistles, not all the epistles have apostolic origin. So uh, can you think of some writings that don't have, that weren't written by an apostle? Yes. Right, we don't know the writer of Hebrews. Now, at the time, they thought Paul wrote it. Uh, because he actually, in the, at, the, at the very end of Hebrews, he refers to Timothy. Uh, and so it often is, it, it was thought historically that Paul wrote it. But right now, you're right. We don't, we recognize Hebrews, but we don't. And I, all, all unlikely, like if you, ever, if you ever go to seminary someday and you ever learn Greek, uh, if you ever try to read the book of Hebrews, like you will recognize very quickly that that is not likely to be Paul writing that, right? Like if you read Galatians or Romans, which is rather easier Greek, uh, and you try to jump into Hebrews, which is a, a whole bunch of new words, a whole bunch of new constructions. It's just different in Greek entirely. Uh, and so uh, I think most New Testament writers don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, and I think for good reason. Uh, but you're right. So apostolic authority uh, not attributed to Hebrews. What are some other ones? What about the Gospels? Yeah. The Gospel of Mark. Mark was not an apostle, right? Okay. What, what's another one? Luke was not an apostle. That's right. Okay. Luke was not an apostle. Mark was not an apostle. What else? Any other epistles that you can think of? Jude. James was also not an apostle, even though we, we believe that's written by the Lord's brother, Jesus' brother, James. Um, so how, how, how do these pass the apostolic authority test? Why do we, why do we say Luke and Mark? We, Matthew and John are, are apparently written by apostles. Obviously, Pauline epistles, First and Second Peter, First through Third John. Emily, yep. That's right. Exactly right. So they were connected. We we could connect uh, by one one degree of separation uh, the writers in some way, and that allowed them to to have a connection to apostolic authority. Luke traveled with Paul, and Mark traveled with Peter, as you, as you say. James was the brother of Jesus uh, and was later identified as a pillar in the church, uh, recognized in Galatians, recognized in Acts. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so we've got uh, the connection there. And Jude is also a half-brother of Jesus. Uh, okay. And Hebrews, like I said, at the time was thought to be a, a Pauline uh, epistle, even though he never identifies himself. We don't, we don't necessarily think that today. So that's one. And I've underlined it because that was the primary one. Uh, right, like so, the primary criterion used for recognizing whether the the uh, the book should be canonized or should be the standard was apostolic authority. If not written by an apostle, one degree of separation between uh, them. The other one is the uh, second one is it has to have apostolic content. In other words, it can't contradict anything that is that has previously been written in the things that we identify as authoritative. And so, there were some core. Uh, books. Um, in all of the books I've recognized, except for Marcion, who, who got rid of everything except Luke, all of those writers recognize all four of the Gospels, right? And so uh, that is not debated. Like, they're heavily attested 
heavily authoritative. The four Gospels were thought for a long, long time to be like, these are the words of God, and these are the ones that we, we stick to. Uh, so it had to have apostolic content according to the things that everybody thought uh, was written by apostles or had apostolic authority. Uh, also the letters of Paul, just about all of them, especially the core ones like Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, all obviously thought to be Paul. And so uh, if books were debated, so for example, First and Second Peter, uh, uh, would be, or could be debated. Like, or it, maybe some people thought they belonged, some people thought they didn't. Well, they were compared to the theology uh, and the content of what you'd found in the Gospels or what you found in the epistles of Paul. And as long as they had apostolic authority, then that we could recognize that, okay, that's, uh, that is, we'll see that as authoritative in Scripture. Um, but there were other writings that we felt like contradicted uh, even though they claimed to have apostolic authority, they contradicted the content of, of uh, those uh, writings that we understand as authoritative. For example, there's something called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, or just the Gospel of Thomas. And if you ever read it, uh, it's very short. Uh, it's just a little over 100 verses, uh, and it describes certain events from Jesus' life. And it's, it's a bit wacky, right? Like it, it involves some things, it teaches some things that contradict uh, historical events from Jesus' life, uh, it has him doing some borderline sinful things like uh, cruelty to animals and, and, uh, and making statements that seem kind of Gnostic, uh, that he doesn't have a body, that he's just kind of like, uh, there's this famous quote, I think it's around 76 from the Gospel of Thomas, maybe verse 76, in the 70s. And it basically is like, look under a tree and I'm there, look under a rock and I'm there, you know, like I'm, I'm, ever, like I'm, 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 in, I'm disembodied, I'm everywhere, kind of this idea. And so uh, that wouldn't fit the apostolic content test or wouldn't pass that test. And so people rejected that as not authoritative. Uh, thirdly, there had to be broad recognition and usage by the church. Right? So uh, uh, it had to be recognized everywhere. And at this time, the church is largely divided into eastern and western sides uh, in the 300s, uh, where you've got a, a Latin-speaking Roman west and a Greek-speaking uh, Eastern branch of the church, and so it was understood that for uh, the writings to be seen as canonical, as authoritative, it had to have broad usage. Everyone recognized that, yes, these are the, these are the books that we see as uh, God's word and authoritative. Now, do we actually have any of the New Testament uh, writings? Any guesses, do we? No, we do not. Okay, no. Uh, no, we don't. We don't have... We don't have any of, the, any of the New Testament writings, no letters of Paul, uh, no Gospels, no original Gospels, uh, we don't even have copies of those. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Uh, the earliest fragment, in fact, the earliest like uh, piece of papyrus that we have with any, any Gospel written on it uh, is called P52. Uh, and it is a little fragment with the Gospel of John on it from about 150. Um, and so that's, that's the earliest thing that we're, that we're aware of. Uh, other than that, it's, it is copies that are dated at a, a later date, either by the material or carbon-15 dating or, or whatever, or just where they were found. Uh, and so is that a problem for viewing the New Testament as God's Word uh, and authoritative and inspired? Does the fact that we don't actually have copies, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out there, some of the copies we do have disagree with one another. Uh, not every one of them is, is, is the exact same copy. Uh, so what do you think? Does that pose a problem for how we view this right here? Does it make it any less authoritative, any less inerrant? What do you think? 
Maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to spoil that for you. What, what, is, what do you think the answer is? <laughs> uh, Emily, yeah, maybe. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, the vast majority, 99%, are, are issues, variance in spelling, right? So the vast majority are issues in spelling differences, yes. But, but there is that 1%. Yes? Okay. Okay, right? You're, you're getting to kind of how we understand modern textual criticism, right? Like how we decide between the variants, the variant readings. But let's go back to the original question. Does the fact that we have all of these uh, different copies and some of them say different things, even slightly different things, does that mean uh, I have to now doubt the authority and inerrancy of my Bible that I hold in my hand? Why or why not? Right. So in this massive game of telephone between copies of copies of copies, we have so much consistency it actually ends up being encouraging that, like, that, that there is so much continuity between uh, the things. And if 99% of them really are spelling differences and errors, then uh, yeah, that maybe is, is, is more encouraging. Keep going. Thank God invented language. Yes. Right. Right. So there is. A, I don't know. Right. Right. He allowed for it in some way in the creation of multiple languages. Right. So there. Right. Right. So we could. So yeah. Right. He allowed for ancient languages, and and uh, there seems to be very early on a tendency to translate the New Testament into other uh, languages, as we did with the Old Testament. Right. Um, and this is, I mean, kind of interesting to think about the the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles were using was actually not a Hebrew, most of, most of the time was not a Hebrew Old Testament. It, it itself was a translation. Uh, it, was, it was the Greek Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. Uh, and so oftentimes when you see Jesus quoting the Old Testament, assuming the apostle is quoting him verbatim, uh, most of the time that, that reading is a, is a Septuagint reading. It's not the, the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament. And so uh, even in Jesus's uh, quotations of the Old Testament, we see that there is uh, room for translation. It's fact encouraged. Um, and very early on, you have the New Testament being translated into things like Syriac and Coptic and all of these surrounding languages so that the gospel could be taken. Uh, so already there's recognized a fluidity. Okay, well, let's, let's spoil this a little bit. No, it's not a problem, okay? All right, I'll relieve the tension. Uh, so one reason it's not a problem is because our theology of, of scriptural authority uh, and inspiration, um, we affirm... Uh, at this church and, and a broadly evangelical 
since. Uh, we affirm statements about the authority and the reliability of the, the Bible uh, that would be consistent with what we would what see as the, the Westminster Confession of Faith and something called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Um, those two things are, are largely in agreement and they are more conservative uh, understandings of how we think about inerrancy. But those, both of those things refer to an idea of what we call verbal plenary inspiration. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is uh, we do believe the very words uh, of the Bible are inspired and we believe they're authoritative and that they are inerrant. But with this caveat that we're referring to the original manuscripts, right? So in the original, what's called autographs, in the original manuscripts uh, written by the apostles, we believe that they are inerrant uh, in, all of they, in all that they affirm. And they, are, and they are without error in everything that they affirm, right? Like, so they never affirm anything false, uh, and, they, and they don't deny anything that's true, right? Like, and so uh, they speak truth. Uh, but we, by appealing to that, by offering that caveat of saying, look, we're, we're, we're talking about like them being authoritative in the original autographs, uh, it allows us to, say, hold two slightly different versions of the Gospel of John. Uh, written by scribes in different centuries apart. Maybe there was a spelling error, or maybe somebody thought this word meant that, or that kind of thing, or maybe somebody even inserted a little uh, part of it they thought was appropriate. Like, maybe this explains something a little bit better, and so they asserted a little, inserted a little part. We compare those. Uh, that doesn't do violence to my understanding of, like, the authority of God's word, because uh, I'm trying to hunt for what God uh, originally had there in the original manuscripts, which I believe are authoritative and inerrant and reliable, right? And so uh, as long as we keep that in view, uh, we can understand that as, as if, if, if I am holding this Bible in my hand uh, and it doesn't 100% completely accurately uh, translate, if the ESV got some of that wrong, if it didn't translate something right, because that is, translation is a human work, right? Like it's something that human beings to the best of their ability uh, are doing and they're trying to assume like there is, there is meaning that could be lost in the translation and they're doing their best. But what I am trying to uh, understand and depend on is to say that God's word is reliable, authoritative, inspired, inerrant. Uh, and I can depend on that. And my goal as a translator or a Bible interpreter is to get at that meaning. And if I'm a textual critic, I'm trying to get at the original reading as best I can. So our theology of inspiration and inerrancy uh, isn't, isn't it all violated by the fact that there may be variant readings or that there may be uh, slight differences between those? Also, uh, our, so our theology starts, uh, and that, that, that makes us a little bit different from other religious faiths like, say, Islam. So if you're familiar with Islam, uh, Islam follows a different understanding of inspiration uh, and how they got their Quran. So according to Islam, uh, the Quran is passed down uh, literally and like by dictation. Like we don't, we don't believe inspiration happened through dictation. We don't believe God told Paul, write this down. But Muslims believe that Allah told, the, told, or told Muhammad to write this down. Uh, through a, a, a season of 20 years in this cave in Medina, uh, Allah uh, purportedly uh, told Allah, or Muhammad to write down the Quranic revelation in, in little periods, right? And so uh, they believe it's dictation. And so it is extremely important for Muslims to not only maintain the accuracy of their text, but to maintain it in the language. Uh, and so if Muslims memorize and recite uh, the Quran, it's not in English, it's in Arabic, the original language, because for them it matters. Like we don't, we memorize Bible verses, but we don't do it in Greek. 
because we recognize that, no, God wants us to get the meaning of that, of that text, not to know it in Greek. Uh, and so for a Muslim, it has to be in Arabic. And they're very uh, particular about certain uh, in, in maintaining the integrity of their uh, versions of the Quran uh, and the accuracy of those. And if you ever read a translation of the Quran, it will specify on the title, or probably on the, on the cover, that this is a translation of the Quran, not the Holy Quran, because the Holy Quran is in Arabic, not in English. All right, so that is different from, from Christians and how we see the Bible. But our theology uh, allows us to have translations. It allows us to uh, use what's called a circumlocution to, 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 to paraphrase uh, something that is literally said in Greek. Uh, next week, when we talk about actual translation and how that works in Bible translations, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of how that might work. And so that'll be interesting. I want you to come back for that. But just to say now, uh, our theology of, of inspiration allows for that. Second, there is more, and this is what I think you're referring to, Kenneth, there is more manuscript evidence uh, attesting to the New Testament than any other ancient document, right? So, like, we have, we have more, so I'll say this, we have more manuscripts, uh, manuscripts and copies of the New Testament than, uh, than the Odyssey, the Iliad, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana, like, every sacred document, like, combined, right? Like, we have all of these variants, all of these copies, and so, in some ways, we have an embarrassment of riches in all of the copies that we can compare to one another, and we have a, bu a bunch of different versions. It's not just, uh, um, it's not just actual like Bibles and codices. It is uh, what we call lectionaries. They were used from like ancient liturgy. Uh, we have quotations from the Apostolic Fathers. We have the Latin Vulgate. We have uh, papyrus. We have vellum. We have uh, parchment. We have all of these kinds of copies of the New Testament. And so we have every reason to think that we have uh, a possible possibility of comparing and getting the accurate reading. And lastly, textual criticism is extremely effective for the reasons that I think you point out. Like most of the time, the variant readings are spelling errors. And so we can get at uh, why, okay, why did this scribe make this uh, error? Most likely it was because they just read it wrong or the, they were doing it by candlelight or they were very tired and they, you know, dragged their hand or that kind of thing because this is all happening by hand. Now, the very few differences that are theological, the very few differences that actually matter and mean something, most of the time, textual critics can figure that one out, too. Uh, and they follow two rules. They go with, one, the shorter reading is the better one, because anybody who's uh, trying to copy something down is not going to intentionally omit something that Jesus said or something the apostles wrote. If anything, they're going to try to elaborate on it. They're going to try to explain it. And so textual critics usually follow the path of the shorter reading is the better, and the more difficult reading is the better one. Uh, because what's a scribe going to do if he's trying to... Uh, write this down, if he's trying to preserve it, if he's trying to move it on, he's going to try to explain something or, or smooth something over rather than use the difficult reading. And so following that path, we're actually very, very confident, uh, ex I would say extremely confident, of the accuracy of, of the New Testament text, the Greek text that we have. And so there's a, it's, it's part arts, part science, but we actually have a, a very high reliability that what we have is in fact highly, uh, highly close to the original manuscripts. Okay, um, so uh, let's stop it there. Do you guys have any questions? Again, we'll, I, I asked this question about the authority, reliability of the actual words that we have in this. We'll have to pick it up next week, and so you'll have to come back. But um, I'd love to hear any questions if you have about the stuff I shared today. Any questions at all? Yes, Ashley.
Oh, so like a circular kind of uh, kind of thing. I mean, you have a. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, saying historically, has there been doubt about the the reliability or the authority of the content of the Bible because uh, people could say, well, you just suppressed the things that were different. Right, the, like the Gospel of Thomas. Right, like. Um, so I, th I think I would, I would respond to that by, by pointing out that as early as we have evidence that people are, are, are citing canons and referencing those things, like we don't have people quoting, we don't have the Apostolic Fathers quoting authoritatively the Gospel of Thomas, and so we don't have indication that that book, for example, was used as authoritative, was cited as uh, containing apostolic content. Uh, there were all kinds of doubts that like somebody named, that Thomas actually wrote that kind of thing. Uh, and so... Uh, I would say more evident, we have more, I mean, you could cite to more evidence in, in terms of like usage. Was it widely recognized? No, it wasn't. And so uh, it's less likely that you see evidence of like suppression of, of dissident voices than just a recognition that, hey, this is what people are already using anyways. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other thoughts, questions? Comments, piggybacking? Yeah, Kenneth. That's good. I agree. That's a, it's a modernist, evangelical, like, arg argument and debate and, and th something to think through. So I agree. That's contextualized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yes. No, yeah, that's right. Uh, you're, no, you're absolutely right. So we don't have a lot of original documents of anything from around that, uh, around that time. I would say that, that in fact, would be uh, incredible to, to have something that uh, was written by, like, penned by Nero or, 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 or even, like, Jewish writers at the time, like, guys, two historians that were writing around the time, philosophers, a guy named Philo and a guy named Josephus. Um, they were writing these kind of mammoth historical accounts. We don't have those autographs either. We have copies of copies of copies, you know, so... It's that kind of thing. We, so it is, it is quite common that we would have written down versions of, of things that are far later. Yes? How would you know you had the original? Paul said, this is the original. This is the original. I'm writing it with my hand. Yes, yeah, signed it. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and an, an, enormous, an enormous amount of textual evidence uh, for uh, the, the consistency of, of, certain, of certain readings. And like, I, like I think, as Emily pointed out, uh, the vast majority of these readings agree with, with one another. Like, we don't have uh, uh, a bunch of outrageous textual variants. I mean, they exist, and yet they're kind of easy to spot and to deal with uh, at the end of the day. So we've got tons and tons of copies, yeah, for sure. Yes? 
Yes. Yep, that's right. In, in, most, in most ways. Like there may be subtle like spelling differences, but in, in most ways, like uh, across the Middle East, where these kinds of things are being distributed early on, uh, highly similar. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, any other thoughts? Did you, did you have a question or comment? Right, primarily, right? Like, so yeah, so you've, uh, so I think that's usually what is being cited. And we don't have, I, like, so I'll say this. You don't have any historians saying these are the three criteria, like Eusebius or Athanasius. Like, you don't have people writing down saying, this is the list of what we use to, like, recognize whether or not something was in or out. Uh, we just infer that from the, from the things that people are saying. Like, Eusebius may point to apostolic authority and say, this is why we prefer these books, and Athanasius may recognize that these are the, the, the versions that are being used in all the churches, right? Like, and so uh, from that, we piece together, like, here's how they were recognizing what has authority and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's still a lot more to talk about. So come next week, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, all the way to today, modern day translations, uh, and I'll even tell you what the best translation is. All right, the best, okay? All right, let me pray and we'll, uh, we'll close this up. Um, God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, again, we believe your word is truth uh, and uh, it is where we find Christ and it is what tells us uh, uh, and reveals uh, you to us. Um, and so we want to uh, know your word. We want to study your word. We want to fall in love with it, memorize it, internalize it, uh, and have you transform us through it. Uh, so, God, I pray that you would, uh, more than just knowing about your word, I pray that we would know your word and know you through it. And so I pray that you would use it to shape us into the image of your son uh, and to sharpen others and one another uh, in love and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.